Section 28 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Craig. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 14, Part 2, Through India. The heat of the night is ominously suggestive of Shedd's popularly conceived temperature, and in the absence of the customary punkah and nodding seesawing walla, a villager is employed to sit beside my sharpoy and agitate the air immediately about my head with a big palm-leaf fan. But sleep is next to impossible. The morning finds me feeling but little refreshed, and with a decided yearning to remain all day long in the shade instead of taking to the road. Not a moment's respite is possible from the oppressive heat. An hour in the saddle develops a sensation of grogginess and an amphibian inclination for wallowing in some roadside tank. South of Sirhind, the country develops into low, flat jungle, with much of it partly overflowed. The road through these semi-submerged lowlands is an embankment rising many feet above the general level and provided with numerous culverts and bridges to prevent the damming of the waters and the danger of washing away the road. The jungle is full of busy life. The air is thick with the low murmuring hum of busy insect life. Birds shriek, whistle, call, hoot, peep, chirp, and sing among the intertwining branches and frogs croak hoarsely in the watery shallows beneath. Noises, too, are heard that would puzzle our adventure to say many a scholarly bookwise and specimen-wise naturalist to define as coming from the articulary organs of bird, beast, or fish. The slow, measured sweep of giant wings beating the air is heard above, and the next moment a huge bustard floats down through the trees and alights in a moist footing of jungle grass and water. A little Brahmin village at the railway station of Rajpara is reached in the middle of the afternoon, but it provides little or nothing in the way of accommodation for a European. The Chow Kidar of the Dak bungalow blandly declares his inability to provide anything eatable for a sahib, and the Eurasian employees at the railway station are unaccommodating and indifferent, owing to the travel-stained and ordinary appearance of my apparel. The Eurasians by the by, impress me far less favorably as a race than do the better-class full-blood natives. It seems to be the unfortunate fate of most mixed races to inherit the more undesirable qualities of both progenitors and the better characteristics of neither. No less than the Mongol populations of certain West Indian islands, the Spanish-speaking republics, and the mulattoes of the southern states, do the Eurasians of India present in their character eloquent argumentation against the error of miscegenation? A little Brahmin village is anything but an encouraging place for a traveler to penetrate in search of eatables. A thin yellow-skinned Brahmin with a calico fig leaf suspended from a coconut fiber waist-string and the white and red tattooing of his holy caste on his forehead presides over a big lump of gudaku a preparation of tobacco, rose leaves, jaggery, bananas, opium, and cardamom seed used for hookah smoking. 
and his double performs the same office for sickly warm goat's milk and doughy and leavened chapatis. Uninviting as is the prospect, one is compelled by the total absence of any alternative to patronize the proprietor of the latter articles. As I step inside his little shed-like establishment to see what he has, he holds up his hands in holy trepidation at the unhallowed intrusion and begs me to be seated outside. My entrance causes as much consternation as the traditional bull in the china shop, the explanation of which is to be found in the fact that anything I might happen to touch becomes at once defiled beyond redemption for the consumption of native customers. With the weather wiltingly hot, doy chapatis, and lukewarm, unstrained, strong-tasting goat's milk can scarcely be called an appetizing meal, and the latter is served in the usual cheap earthenware platter, which is at once tossed out and broken. The natives of India are probably less concerned about their stomachs than the people of any other country in the world. They seem to delight in fasting and growing thin and emaciated. Their ordinary meal is a handful of parched grain and a few swallows of milk or water. Among the ascetic Brahmins are many specimens reduced by habitual fasting and general meagerness of diet to the condition of living skeletons. Yet they seem to enjoy splendid health and live to a shriveled old age. The Brahmin shopkeeper squats contentedly among his wares, passing the hours in dreaming meditation and consoling pipes of Guduku. Nothing seems to disturb his calm serenity any more than the reposeful expression on the countenance of a marble Buddha could be effective, nothing but the approach of a sahib towards his shop. It is interesting to observe the mingled play of politeness, apprehension, and alarm in the actions of a Brahmin shopkeeper at the appearance of a blundering but withal well-meaning sahib among his wares. Knowing from long experience that the Englishman would on no account willfully injure his property or trample wantonly on his caste prejudices, he is at his wit's end to comport himself deferentially and at the same time prevent anything from being handled. Money has to be placed where the Brahmin can pick it up without incurring the awful danger of personal contact with an unhallowed kaffir. The fifty miles that from the splendid condition of the roads I have thought little enough for the average day's run is duly reeled off as I ride into the splendid civil lines and cantonment of Umbala at dusk. But my few days' experience on the roads of India have sufficed to convince me that fifty miles is entirely beyond the bounds of discretion. It is, in fact, beyond the bounds of discretion to be riding any distance in the present season here. Fifty miles is overcome today only by the exercise of almost superhuman willpower. The average native, when asked for the Dak bungalow, is quite as likely to direct one to the post office, the kuchery, or any other government building from a seeming inability to discriminate between them. At the entrance to Umbala, one of these hopeful participants in the blessings of enlightened government informs me with sundry obsequious salaams that the Dak bungalow is four miles farther. So thoroughly has my fifty-mile ride used up my energy that even this four miles on a most perfect road seems utterly impossible of accomplishment. Besides which, experience has taught that following the directions given would very likely bring me to the post office, and farther away from the Dak bungalow than ever. 
Above the trees not far away it was observed the weathercock of a chapel spire, plainly indicating the location of a European quarter. Taking a branch road leading in that direction, I discover a party of English and native gentlemen playing a game of lawn tennis. Arriving on the scene just as the game is breaking up, I am cordially invited to come in and take a peg. To the uninitiated, a peg is a rather ambiguous term, but to the Anglo-Indian its interpretation takes the seductive form of a big tumbler of brandy and soda, a long drink, and which nothing could be more acceptable in my present fagged-out condition. No hesitation is therefore made in accepting, and under the stimulating influence of the generous brandy and soda, exhausted nature is quickly recuperated. While not an advocate of indiscriminate indulgence in alcoholic stimulants, after an interverting ride through the wilting heat of an Indian day, I am convinced that nothing is more beneficial than what Anglo-Indians laconically describe as a peg. This very opportune meeting results, naturally enough, in a pressing invitation to stay over and recruit up for a day, a program to which I offer no objections, feeling rather overdone and in need of rest and recuperation. Mine hosts are police commissioners, having supervision over the police district of Unabala. One of their number is on the eve of departure for his summer vacation in the Himalayas, and in honor of the event, several guests call round to partake of a champagne dinner, a sparkling pomery sack being quaffed ad libitum from pint tumblers. At the present time, no surer does water seek its level than the after-dinner conversation of Anglo-Indian officials turns into the discussion of the great depreciation of the silver rupee and its relation to the exchange at home. As the rate of exchange goes lower and lower, and no corresponding increase of salary takes place, the natural result is a great deal of hardship and dissatisfaction among those who, from various causes, have to send money to England. From the Anglo-Indians' daily association with Orientals and the peculiarly subtle understandings, it is perhaps not so surprising to find an occasional flight of fancy brought to bear upon the subject that would do credit to a professional romancer. One ingenious young civil officer present evolves a deep, deep scheme to get even with the government for present injustice that for far-reaching and persistent revenge speaks volumes for the young gentleman's determination to carry his point. His brilliant scheme is to retire on a pension at the proper time, live to the age of eighty years, and then marry a healthy girl of sixteen. As the pension of an Anglo-Indian government officer descends to his surviving widow, the ingenuity and depth of this person's reasoning powers becomes at once apparent. He proposes to take revenge for the present shortcomings of the government by saddling it with a pension for a hundred years or more after his retirement from active service. Tusked and antlered trophies of the chase adorning the walls, and panther and tiger skins scattered about the floor, attest the police commissioner's prowess with the rifle in the surrounding jungle. The height of every young Englishman's ambition when he comes to India is to kill a tiger. Not until with his own rifle he has laid low a genuine Tigris Indicus and handed its striped pelt over to the taxidermist does he feel entitled to hold his chin at a becoming elevation and to indulge in the luxury of talking about the big game of the jungle on an equality with his fellows. 
Among the pets of the establishment are a youthful black bear that spends much of its time in climbing up and down a post on the lawn, a recently captured monkey that utters cries of alarm and looks badly frightened when approached by a white person, and a pair of spotted deer. These, together with several hunting dogs that delight in taking wanton liberties with the bear and deer, form quite a happy, though not altogether trustful, family party in the grounds. The day's rest does me a world of good, and upon resuming my journey the voice of my own experience is augmented by the advice of my entertainers, in warning me against overexertion and fatigue in so trying a climate as India. It has rained during the night, and the early morning is signaled by cooler weather than has yet been experienced from Lahore. Companies of tall Sikhs, magnificent-looking fellows in their trim khaki uniforms and monster turbans, are drilling within the native infantry lines as I wheel through the broad avenues of one of the finest cantonments in all India, and English officers and their wives are taking the morning air on horseback. This splendid cantonment contains no less than 7,220 acres and might well be termed a magnificent park throughout. It is in the hilly tracts of the Imbala district that the curious custom prevails of placing infants beneath little cascades of water so that the stream of water shall steadily descend on the head. The cool water of some mountain rivulet is converted into a number of streams appropriate for the purpose by means of bamboo ducks or spouts. The infants are brought thither in the morning by their mothers and placed in proper position on beds of grass the trickling water pouring on their heads keeps the brain cool and is popularly supposed to be efficacious in the prevention of many infantile diseases peculiar to the country. Children not subjected to this curious hydropathic treatment are said to generally die young or grow up weaklings in comparison with the others. A sudden freshet in the ordinarily shallow and partially dry bed of the Dongli River tells of the heaviness of last night's rainstorm among the hills and compels a halt of a couple of hours until the rapidly subsiding water gets low enough to admit of fording it with the native bullock gari. A branch of the same stream is crossed in a similar manner, and yet a third river, a few miles farther, has to be crossed on a curious raft made of a number of buoyant earthenware jars fixed in a bamboo frame. A splendid bridge spans the swollen torrent of the more formidable Marcunda, and the well-metaled highway now cuts a wide, straight swath through inundated jungle. A big wild monkey, the first of his species thus far encountered on the road, utters a shrill squeak of apprehension at seeing the bicycle come bowling down the road, and in his fright he leaps from the branches of a roadside tree into the shallow water and escapes into the jungle with frantic leaps and bounds. Traveling leisurely and resting often for thirty miles, the afternoon brings me to the small town of Peepli, where a dak bungalow provides food and shelter of a certain kind. The sleeping accommodation of the dak bungalow may hardly be described as luxurious. Ants and other insects swarm in myriads, and lizards drag their slimy length about the timber of the walls and ceiling. The wild jungle encroaches on the village, and the dak bungalow occupies an isolated position at one end. The jungle resounds with the strange noises of animals and birds, and a friendly native who speaks a little English confides the joyful information that the deadly cobra everywhere abounds.
For the first time it is cool enough to sleep without the services of the punkawala, and not a soul remains about the dak bungalow after nightfall. The night is dark and cloudy, but not by any means silent, for the noises of the night are multitudinous and varied, ranging from the tuneful croaking of innumerable frogs to the yelping chorus of the jackals. The weird nocturnal concert of the Indian jungle, a musical melange far easier to imagine than describe. About ten o'clock, out from the gloomy depths of the jungle nearby is suddenly heard the unmistakable caterwauling of a panther, followed by that cunning arch dissembler's inimitable imitation of a child in distress. As though awed and paralyzed by this revelation of the panther's dread presence, the chirping and juggling and preying and yelping of inferior creatures cease as if by mutual impulse moved and the pitter-patter of little feet are heard on the clay floor of my bungalow. The cry of the forest prowler is repeated, nearer than before to my quarters, and presently something hops up on the foot of the charpoy on which my recumbent form is stretched, and still continues the pattering of feet on the floor. It is pitchy dark within the bungalow, and uncertain of the nature of my strange visitant, I kick and queek at him and scare him off, but evidently terrorized by the appearance of the panther, the next minute he in again invades my couch. To have one's room turn Nolan's volans into the place of refuge for timid animals, hiding from a prowling panther, which is not unlikely to follow them inside, is anything but a desirable experience in the dark. Should his panthership come nosing inside the bungalow in his eagerness to secure something for supper, he might not pause to discriminate between brute and human and as his awe-inspiring voice is heard again, apparently quite nearby, I deem it expedient to warn him off. So reaching my Smith & Wesson from under the pillow, I fire a shot up into the thatched roof. The little intruders, whatever they may be, scamper out of the bungalow, nor wait upon the order of their going, and a loud scream some distance away a moment later tells of the panther's rapid retreat into the depths of the jungle. Soon a courageous bullfrog gives utterance to a subdued, hesitant croak. His excellent example is quickly followed by others. Answering noises spring up in every direction, and ere long the midnight concert of the jungle is again in full melody. A comparatively cooling breeze blows across flooded jungle and rice field in the morning. The country around resembles a shallow lake, from out of which the rank vegetation of the jungle rears its multiform foliage. Much of the water is merely the temporarily overflow of the Marcunda, silently moving through the shady forest, but over the more permanently submerged areas is gathered a thick green scum. Not unlike a broad expanse of level meadowland do some of these open spaces seem, and the yellow fallen blossoms of the gum Arabic trees scattered thickly about are the buttercups spangling and beautifying the meadows. Forty-eight miles from Umbala, the Grand Trunk Road leads through the civil lines and past the towering walls of ancient Kurnal. Formerly on the banks of the river Jumna, Kurnal is now removed several miles from that stream, owing to the wayward trick of Indian rivers carving out for themselves new channels during seasons of extraordinary flood. The city is all beyond the records of history, its name and fame glimmering faintly in the dim and distant perspective of ancient Hindustani legend and mythical tales. 
within the last few hundred years Kunal has been taken and retaken, plundered and destroyed by Sikh, Rajput, Mughal, and Maratha freebooters, and was occupied in 1795 by the celebrated adventurer George Thomas, who figured so largely in the military history of India during the latter part of the last century. Here also was fought the great battle between Nadir Shah and Mohammed Shah, the Emperor of Delhi, that resulted in the defeat of the latter, the subsequent looting of Delhi, and the carrying off to Persia of the famous peacock throne. Splendid water tanks, spreading bunions, feathery date palms, and toddy palms render the suburbs of Kurnal particularly attractive these days, but the place is unhealthy being very low and the surrounding country subject to the overflow that induces fever. A letter of introduction from Mbala to Mr. D., Deputy Commissioner at Kunal, ensures me hospitable recognition and creature comforts upon reaching the latter place at 9 a.m. Spending the heat of midday in Mr. D.'s congenial society, recounting the incidents of my journey and learning in return much valuable information in regard to India, I continue on my journey again when the fiercest heat of the sun has subsided in favor of the slightly more tolerable evening. The country grows more and more interesting from various standpoints as my progression carries me southward. Not only does it become intensely interesting by reason of its historical associations in connection with the old Mughal Empire, but in its peculiar aspect of Indian life today. Monkeys are hopping about all over the place moving leisurely about the roofs and walls of the villages, or complacently examining one another's phrenological peculiarities beneath the trees. About the streets, shops, and houses, these mischievous anthropoids are seen in droves, moving hither and thither at their own sweet will, as much at home as the human occupants and owners of the houses themselves. Monkeys, being held sacred by the Hindus, are allowed to remain in the towns and villages unmolested, doing pretty much as they please. Sometimes they swarm in such numbers that eternal vigilance alone keeps them from devouring the fruit, grain, and other eatables displayed for sale in front of the shops. When they get to be an insufferable nuisance, although the pious Hindus would suffer from their depredations even to ruin rather than do them injury, they offer no objection to being relieved of their charges by the government officials so long as the measures taken are not of a sanguinary nature. Sometimes the monkeys are caught and shipped off in carloads to some point miles away and turned loose in the jungle. The appearance of a carload of these exiles, however, always excites the sympathies of the pious Hindu, and instances have been known when they have been stealthily liberated while the train was waiting at some other town. An effectual remedy has been recently discovered in cleaning out colonies of the smaller varieties of monkeys and inducing them to remove somewhere else by introducing into their midst a certain warlike and aggressive variety from somewhere in the Himalaya foothills. This particular race of monkey, being a veritable anthropoidal Don Juan among his fellows, when turned loose in a village, commences making violent love to the wives and sweethearts of the resident monkeys. The faithless fair, ever ready for coquetry and flirtation, flattered beyond measure by the attention of the gallant stranger, forsake their first loves by the wholesale and bask shamelessly in the sunshine of his favor. The result is that the outraged males, afraid to attack the warlike libertines so rudely introduced into their peaceful community, 
gather up their erring spouses, giddy daughters, and small children, and betake themselves off forever. Not far from Kurnal, I overtake an interesting party of gypsies, moving with their bag and baggage piled on the backs of diminutive cows led by strings. Numbers of the smaller children also bestride the gentle little bovines, but the rest of the party are afoot. The ruling passion of the Romany, the wide world over, asserts itself at my approach. Brown-bodied youngsters with sparkling coal-black eyes race after the bicycle, holding out their hands and begging, Pice, sahib, pice, pice. Facsimile in cry and gesture almost, and in appearance, are these Hindustani gypsies of their relatives in distant Hungary, who, fifteen months before, raced alongside the bicycle and begged for cruiser, cruiser. Many ethnologists believe India to have been the original abiding place of the now widely scattered Romanies. Certain it is that no country and no clime would be so well adapted to shiftless habits and wandering tent life as India. Their language, subjected to analysis, has been traced in a measure to Sanskrit roots, and although spread pretty much all over the surface of the globe, this strange romantic people are said to recognize one another by a common language even should the one hail from India and the other from the frozen north. Certain professors claim to have discovered a connecting link between the gypsies of the Occident and the Jats of the Punjab. A boy tending a sacred cow undertakes to drive that worshipful animal out of my way as he sees me come bowling briskly down the road. The bovine, pampered and treated with the greatest deference and consideration from her earliest calfhood, resents this treatment by making a short but determined spurt after me as I sweep past. Whether the sacred cows of India are spoiled by generations of overindulgence, or whether the variety is constitutionally ill-tempered does not appear, but they one and all take pugnacious exception to the bicycle. Spurting away from a chasing Brahmini cow is an everyday experience. Mr. D. has kindly telegraphed from Kurnal to Nawab Ali Ahmed Khan, a hospitable Mohammedan gentleman at Panaput, apprising him of my coming. More ancient even than Kurnal, Panaput's vast antiquity is reputed to extend back to the period of the great Pandava War, described in the Mahabharata, and supposed to have been fought nearly 4,000 years ago. The city occupies a commanding position to the left of the road and is rendered conspicuous by several white marble domes and minarets. The Nawab and another native gentleman, physician to the Panaput Hospital, are seated in a dog cart watching for my appearance at a fork in the road near one of the city gates. The Nawab's place is a mile and a half off the main road, but the smooth level kunko leads right up to the fine commodious bungalow in which I am duly installed. A tepid bath, prepared in deference to the Nawab's anticipation of my preference, is awaiting my pleasure and from the moment of arrival I am the recipient of unstinted attention. A large reclining chair is placed immediately beneath the punkah, and a punkawala, ambitious to please, causes the frilled hangings of this desirable and necessary piece of furniture to wave vigorously to or fro but a foot or eighteen inches above my head. A smiling servant kneels at my feet and proceeds to knead and groom the muscles of the legs. Judging from the attentions lavished upon my pedal extremities, one might well imagine me to be a racehorse, 
that had just endeared himself to his groom and owner by winning the derby. An ample supper is followed by a most refreshing sleep, and in the morning when ready to depart, my watchful attendants present themselves with broad smiles and sheets of paper. Each one wants a certificate showing that he has contributed to my comfort and entertainment. And lastly comes the Nawab himself and his bosom friend, the hospital doctor, to bid me farewell and request the same favor. This certificate foible is one of the greatest bores in India. Almost every native who performs any service for a sahib, whether in the capacity of a mere waiter at a native hotel or as a retainer of some wealthy Nabob, and not infrequently the Nabob himself, if a government official, wants a testimonial expressing one's approval of his services. An old servitor who has mingled much among Europeans must have whole reams of these useless articles stowed away. What in the world they want with them is something of a puzzler, though the idea is probably that they might come in useful to obtain a situation some time or other. South of Paniput, the trees alongside the roads are literally swarming with monkeys. They file in long strings across the road, looking anxiously behind, evidently frightened at the strange appearance of the bicycle. Shinnying up the toddy palms, they ensconce themselves among the foliage and peer curiously down at me as I wheel past, giving vent to their perturbation in excited cries. Twenty-five miles down the road, an hour is spent beneath the grove of shady peoples, watching the amusing antics of a troop of monkeys in the branches. Their marvelous activity among the trees is here displayed to perfection, as they quarrel and chase one another from tree to tree. The old ones seemed passively irritable and decidedly averse to being bothered by the antics and mischievous activity of the youngsters. Taking possession of some particular branch, they warn away all would-be intruders with threatening grimaces and feints. The youthful members of the party are skillful of pranks and didos carried on to the great annoyance of their more aged and sedate relatives, who in revenge put in no small portion of their time punishing or pursuing them with angry cries for their deeds of wanton annoyance. One monkey that has very evidently been there many and many a time before on the same thievish errand with an air of amusing secrecy and roguishness, slips quickly along a horizontal bough and thrusts its arm into a hole. Its eyes wander guiltily around, as though expectant of detection and attack, an apprehension that quickly justifies itself in the shape of a blue-plumaged bird that flutters angrily about the robber's head, causing it to beat a hasty retreat. Bird's eggs are the booty it expected to find, and methinks, as I note the number and activity of the freebooters to whom bird's eggs would be most toothful morsels, watchful indeed must be the parent bird whose maternal ambition bears its legitimate fruit in this monkey-infested grove. In me the monkeys seem to recognize a possible enemy, and at my first appearance hasten to hide themselves among the thickest foliage. Hearing, cautiously down, they yield themselves up to excited chattering and broad grimaces. Peacocks, too, are strutting majestically about the green sward beneath the trees. Their gorgeous tails expanded or perched on some horizontal branch, they awake the screaming echoes in reply to others of their kindred calling in the jungle. In the same way that monkeys are regarded and worshipped as the representatives of the great mythological monkey king Hanuman, who assisted Kama in his war with Havana for the possession of Sita, 
so is the peacock revered and held sacred as the bird upon which rode Kartikeya, the god of war, and commander-in-chief of the armies of the Puranic gods. Thus do both these denizens of the jungle obtain immunity from harm at the hands of the natives by reason of mythological association. English sportsmen shoot them, however, except in certain specified districts where the government has made their killing prohibitory in deference to the religious prejudices of the Hindus. The Rajput warriors of Uwar used to march to battle with a peacock's feather in their turbans. They believe that the reason why this fine plumaged bird screams so loudly when it thunders is because it mistakes the noise for the roll of war drums. Large two-storied passenger vans, drawn sometimes by one camel and sometimes two, are now frequently encountered. They are regular two-storied cages, with iron bars like the animal vans in a menagerie. The passengers squat on the floors, and when traveling at night or through wild districts, are locked in between stages to guard against surprise and robbery. End of section 28